Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas, with the third programme in a four-part series on doctoring the family. This programme was originally broadcast in 1985. The normal way cultures have gone on is by family and relatives and neighbours teaching the young mother coming along. She observes and she learns from those around her. Who knows better about breastfeeding than a mother who has successfully breastfed her child? What scared me most about childbirth was the thought of being unconscious while well, people did things to me. I wanted to be awake, I wanted to be aware of the moment you know, when my child was born, and what actually happened was that I was not allowed to do it without anesthesia. And, uh, that whole thing was taken from me. She was delivered by forceps. I didn't get to see her for hours and hours and hours. And then when I did, I remember noticing that I didn't seem to have any instinctual connection with her. And I, I even questioned whether she was my baby. We would gather, we young faculty wives, every morning we'd gather in the playground and we'd talk about our pediatricians. That was a major topic of conversation. And I can remember myself, you know, uttering every single last syllable of what the pediatrician said and what, even in what tone of voice he said it. Welcome to the third program in our series, Doctoring the Family, a look at the ways in which medicine has reshaped the traditional experience of childbirth and child rearing. Tonight's program examines the impact of pediatricians on family life. The program is written by Jutta Mason and David Cayley and presented by David Cayley. Child rearing was traditionally the business of the family and of the cultural community to which the family belonged. Knowledge was passed between friends and between generations and people did not question their ability to do the things for which nature had obviously intended them. In the predominantly rural society of 19th century Canada, this was generally the way things were. But gradually, professional reformers were asserting their belief that the health and welfare of children was too important to be left to the devices of the family alone. The movement to transform traditional child-rearing began in earnest in the early years of this century and gathered steam after World War I. The terrible loss of life in the war and the influenza epidemic which followed, created a desire for something more positive, and Save Our Babies became the slogan which caught the public imagination. The Red Cross, various voluntary and nursing societies, and the newly developed public health departments in many provinces all threw their energies into a military-style propaganda campaign to save babies from the twin scourge of disease and incompetent parents. There were slide and moving picture shows, sermons on designated baby welfare Sundays, exhibits at county fairs, and even special railway cars traveling from town to town with baby welfare displays. Numerous publications, federal, provincial, and municipal, combined in what the Red Cross in 1921 was calling a flank attack on ignorance. And women's groups, such as the National Council of Women and the Women's Institutes, sponsored baby welfare clinics, such as this one, described in the National Council of Women's magazine, Women's Century, in 1919. Sixty-two children were examined, 
The doctors worked hard from 10 a.m. Like leaves in the forest, none were perfect. Many beautiful children were found with defects which their mothers little suspected, most of which could be remedied if taken in time. Prizes were given, perfect health diplomas were to have been given, but as there were no perfect children, this was not done. The prizes were done as an inducement to bring on the children, but it was not needed, as the most encouraging feature was the number of mothers who brought their children just to find out their condition. The Women's Institute has accomplished many good things for this community, but no other has ever aroused so much interest. Seven doctors and two nurses were in attendance during the day and gave their time free. Many children had to be turned away for lack of time. Many mothers, apparently, were susceptible to the idea that their babies had problems of which they were unaware, problems so subtle that they could be discerned only by the trained professional eye. But there was resistance to these clinics as well. In 1921, for example, one Prairie newspaper reported that many fathers resisted having their babies evaluated in this manner, that this, quote, put them on a par with colts, calves, and pigs. And not all the mothers were enthusiastic either, as Mary McCallum reported in the Grain Grower's Guide. Not long ago, I was in a small town in Manitoba, and during conversation with several ladies, the topic of the district nurse came up. One old lady who had raised several children said with some heat, Well, this is all Tommy rot, using the people's money to send nurses around the country telling women how to bring up babies. Needless to say, she was somewhat sat upon and was before the audience of a lengthy dissertation on the benefits of the Provincial Department of Health in general and district nurses in particular in which everybody joined. I don't believe she is convinced, however, and there are many like her in the country, but their bulwarks of opposition are breaking down before the offensive of records of success. The kind of advice that was being given to mothers by the baby welfare crusaders is typified by an article written for Chatelaine in 1929 by nurse Stella Pines. Above the article is a large clock with a baby on its face. The subheadline announces that the household need never be disturbed by the new arrival. Miss Pines is billed as a renowned expert on mothercraft. Out of doors will be his day nursery every possible moment, but for a few days he must be kept inside with the windows open. After that he may come in only to be bathed, fed and changed, unless the weather is very bad and there is no sheltered spot for him. Feeding time should be kept too strictly. Baby should be held out regularly for the action of the bowels and kidneys from the time he is born. He then learns what is expected of him. The later you leave him for regular training, the harder it will be. Sleeping time, bathing, outings, all need regulating. He also learns to know when mother has a little time to spare to play with him. You need not be afraid he will become a machine. Nature guards against that in his development, but do not leave too much to nature. For the first 24 hours, babies should be put to both breasts for a few minutes every six hours, and from then onwards every four hours, unless otherwise ordered by the doctor. Never allow more than 20 minutes for the whole feeding. 
Test weighing of the baby shows that he gets the bigger part of his food in the first five minutes and that it is not necessary to leave him on indefinitely as prolonged nursing establishes bad habits. The baby welfare movement was a curious mixture of parts. It was at the same time a vehicle for the ambitions of doctors and nurses, an attempt to modernize child rearing along what the concerned professionals thought of as scientific lines, and a sincere attempt to improve health by improving hygiene. But in this last respect, it was very much hampered by the long-term decline in breastfeeding, which exposed many babies to the hazards of impure milk. According to estimates produced by Toronto pediatrician Alan Brown in 1918, 60% of rural women were still nursing their babies past six months, but breastfeeding in the cities had fallen below 20%. The cow's milk that was available to feed these non-nursing babies was often in very poor condition, and it remained that way until the 1920s as a result of the dairy industry's success in blocking compulsory pasteurization. These were one old Vancouver doctor's recollections of the period around 1900. Milk sometimes stood in cans or railway sidings in the sun all day for one or two days or more. A great deal of it was sour. Formalin and boric acid were added to delay fermentation and souring. The milk was peddled from door to door in big cans on a cart. You took out a jug, and the milkman dipped out your quart from an open can. Flies abounded and were ignored. The writer of this once saw the bottom of one of these cans covered with about two inches of mud and live worms crawling in it. Spoiled milk was a particular problem during the hot months when it resulted in often fatal gastroenteritis, popularly known as summer complaint. Alan Brown attributed at least one-third of infant deaths at this time to bottle feeding, a connection that was conclusively established by an experiment carried out in Fort William, Ontario, after 1912. There, the medical officer of health hired one nurse to encourage breastfeeding. She visited all the families with new babies and responded to all requests for information and assistance. The local newspaper also gave the campaign free publicity. The results were startling. In 1911, the year before the campaign began, the number of deaths of babies under one year from gastroenteritis during the summer months had been 120 in 1,000. By 1912, breastfeeding had increased and the death rate had dropped to 39 per 1,000. And in 1913, with the majority of women now breastfeeding, there were only eight deaths per thousand. Despite this remarkable success, this experiment appears never to have been repeated elsewhere. Another solution to the problem of contamination was to use canned milk, a product that was being heavily advertised at this time. Indeed, it is likely that this extensive advertising was one of the causes of the decline in breastfeeding. Dr. Woodhouse of Fort William reported in 1913 that the manufacturers of infant feeding preparations would pay 25 cents for every report a registrar sent them of a birth so that they could visit the home with literature, samples, and a sales pitch. Dr. Royer of Halifax wrote in 1921 that they also flooded doctor's offices with promotional materials. And Dr. Helen McMurchie, the director of the federal government's child welfare division, told Parliament that every fence post in the country was plastered with advertisements for these proprietary baby foods, as they were called. These canned products did avoid the problem of contamination, but nutritionally, 
they were still far inferior to breast milk. Rita Dozwa was a nurse in several Indian communities in Ontario and Manitoba many years later when bottle feeding was beginning to replace breastfeeding there, and she observed the consequences. They were using carnation, and uh, the water wasn't always good, and they wouldn't always boil their water before they mixed it with the milk. And in some cases, uh, we have found where the mothers have gone out and didn't prepare bottles for the baby, that grandma would prepare it and almost feed uh, 100% carnation so that uh, the baby would be vomiting from this uh, very thick milk. Then also we found that if they were um, running out of money, that they would not be buying milk, uh, not a lot of it anyway, and the milk that they were feeding the baby would be kind of thin, you know, very bluish milk, as we called it. And that was because they didn't have enough to, to buy more milk, and, and they were trying to stretch it out to, to make it go long, further. We used to get what we called carnation babies. They were nice, big, fat babies with a hemoglobin of zero, you know. Uh, really low hemoglobin. You could spot them in a, in a bunch of babies. They would be as white as a sheet. And that's because that's all they were eating was carnation. And uh, they would get fat from the high fat content, but they certainly uh, were not healthy babies. The anemic condition of babies fed on canned milk increased their susceptibility to infectious diseases and therefore their death rate. The decline in breastfeeding is thus once again clearly linked to an increase in infant mortality. Why then did it happen? One part of the answer, which I will come to in a moment, lies in the lengthy separation of mothers and babies at the time of birth in hospitals. But equally important seems to have been a universal fascination with what was seen as new and modern. This is borne out by the fact that breastfeeding declined first in the self-consciously progressive urban middle class. Victoria Brandon. Nursing was in itself a sort of a, a crass thing. When my son was born, my friends had begun to nurse their babies again. But my mother's attitude, her generation, much more than ours, thought of it as rather, um, well, it was something animals did, and the lower classes, that was <laughs> well done. It wasn't something that a nice person, you, you kept it a sort of a dirty secret. Breastfeeding in Victoria Brandon's Mother's Day was something that was done privately when it was done at all. And according to Niles Newton, this embarrassment had a lot to do with the fact that attitudes towards breastfeeding tend to mirror prevailing sexual attitudes. I have uh, my grandmother's book called A Lady's Dictionary which was, it's a fantastic thing. It was published about 110 years ago, and it was a dictionary with all the sex words removed. That's how much they felt about sexuality. And, of course, the breasts are hormonally connected. Uh, if you suckle at the breasts, the uterus contracts as well. Breastfeeding and labor and delivery and uh, coitus are part of the same thing for women. And, of course, that makes people embarrassed. I call that the trebly sensuous woman because we have the hormone of oxytocin, which makes your face be a little flushed and gives you mood elevation. And uh, it occurs, very interestingly, in female orgasm. It occurs during the end of labor. 
and it occurs during breastfeeding. There's a hormonal base for our love life, and I suppose we kind of feel it, and, and if you feel embarrassed about one, you feel embarrassed and shy about the other. The decline of breastfeeding and the willingness of many women to adopt a highly regimented approach to child-rearing had a lot to do with the way in which the relationship between mother and baby got started in hospital at the time of birth. Routine use of powerful painkillers and anesthetics for childbirth generally left the mother groggy for several days, and sometimes the baby as well. And when the mother did come around, she often felt that the baby belonged to the hospital nursery where it spent most of its time rather than to her. Mary Ellis had her babies in the later 1940s and early 1950s. I don't think they even brought the baby to you because you were so dopey in that for the first day. I think it was about the second day before they brought it. And then they, they warned you that you must not unwrap it. You must leave it in this little tight little bundle and they had it all wrapped up with the blankets tucked in a certain way and uh, if, you, if you did unwrap it and look at its feet and didn't get it wrapped up again the way they had it, they would let you know that you hadn't done it quite right. I didn't feel any attachment to that little crying thing there at all. They would bring him in at feeding times and, and leave him with you, and I used to wish they'd come and take him away because I just didn't want to be bothered. And I don't remember ever really looking forward to having that child come in the room in all the time I was in the hospital. It was just a, something I had to do. But there was never any joy in it for me. Why Mary Ellis might have felt this way is illuminated by some research done about 20 years later by pediatricians Marshall Klaus and John Kennel. Their work in premature nurseries had shown them the harmful consequences that can arise from the separation of mother and baby. And this led them to begin to study the normal process by which a mother and a baby get acquainted in the first days of life. Marshall Klaus. Very early in our work, we began to look at how other societies manage these first early days. The first striking difference was that the mother and baby may not be together immediately, but in the first seven days, and in most, in most societies, the mother and baby are put in a room together and people bring them wood and water and food so that the mother has a time, in a sense, to get to know her baby and her baby's needs. In our own society, the baby is mainly spending most of his time in the nursery and comes out every four hours for about 20 or 30 minutes. Then we began to look at other animal studies and noted that different animal mothers had different ways of approaching their babies. And we began to wonder if there was a specific way that human mothers had in approaching their babies if they were left alone. So in Cleveland with Dr. Kennel, we took a group of perfectly normal mothers and babies and put the babies next to the mothers for the first hour and watched what the mothers did and filmed the mothers. And it was interesting, for the first few minutes, they would poke the babies, arms and legs, with their fingertips. But in two, three minutes, they quickly moved to palming the baby and palming mainly the trunk of the baby and talking about the eyes. Eighty percent of what they said was related to the eyes. Please open your eyes. If you open your eyes, I know you're mine. And we began to appreciate that the connection that developing 
was a very complex one. It was an interaction between the mother and baby, and that the baby was not a silent partner, but he was interacting and responding to the mother. Eventually, a number of researchers came to the conclusion that a baby right after birth is in a very special state. Peter Wolf of Boston named it the quiet alert state. In the quiet alert state, the baby would follow. The baby would turn his head to sound. He would move his body and rhythm to speech. He could actually be taught to imitate facial gestures, to stick out his tongue. And we began to tape record what mothers said. And a great deal of what they said was related to the responsiveness of the baby. And we began to develop the concept that it was a very important act for the baby to respond to the mother. And if the baby did not respond to the mother, either by looking at her eyes or moving with her, that the mother did not begin to feel that the baby cared about her. Normal infants spend 40 minutes in this quiet, alert state. Then they go to sleep for four hours, and they don't wake up. And when they wake up, it's for just a few minutes. And uh, no other time, usually, is this quiet, alert state so striking in the first four or five days. So it looks like the human infant is uh, prepared and especially adapted to meet his mother. Marshall Klaus and his associates have never claimed that this was the only time that a proper bond could form between mother and baby. Human beings are extremely resilient, and it is obvious that an esthetized childbirth did not prevent the subsequent formation of strong bonds between many mothers and their children. But hospital practice did make it harder for those bonds to develop. Ina Mae Gaskin is an American midwife who had her first child in the mid-60s. I was somebody that should have come out of childbirth well. I, I think I was a real common type of experience that I had. I had, you know, relatively good childbirth, I guess I'd say, because my daughter and I didn't have any complications. I successfully breastfed her. There was no great unusual thing that happened. I just went through the usual process. The thing is, though, that, that um, what scared me most about childbirth was the thought of being unconscious. Well, you know, people did things to me. I wanted to be awake. I wanted to be aware of the moment, you know, when my child was born. And what actually happened was that I was not allowed to do it without anesthesia. And uh, that whole thing was taken from me. She was delivered by forceps. I didn't get to see her for hours and hours and hours. And then when I did, I remember noticing that I didn't seem to have any instinctual connection with her. And I, I even questioned whether she was my baby. I remember when they did finally bring her to me, they seemed to expect me to behave lovingly toward her. And while I held her in my arms, I was embarrassed. I was really profoundly embarrassed by their expectations and my inability to fulfill them in any honest way because I didn't feel moved to you know, what you'd expect, you know, a mother receiving her first child. It just it wasn't in me to do that at the time, and it was kind of like being on a, you know, teenager and the date and, and being just really examined by all these other people that expect you're having a wonderful time when really you're just messed up. <laughs> Every time they brought her to me, I fed her and stuff, but I, I was really embarrassed to show her any infection. And I remember being shocked when the day, you know, five days later, they were going to turn me loose with her, and they hadn't even given me a class on how to take care of her. 
Here I was only allowed to touch her when they said I could, and then they took her away, and I really got the feeling that she was theirs and that I was some dirty, ignorant person. Now, I wasn't putting this all into words at the time. I'm really just describing my feelings. So I, I can see now, in retrospect, that affected me for easily two, three, four years, and it took a whole lot to overcome that. I didn't have a feeling that I could protect her. I had a feeling that I had to go to some expert to find out what to do and then follow their instructions, but there was nothing within me that knew what to do. Ina May Gaskin at least established breastfeeding in the hospital. Many other women were not so fortunate. Although most doctors seemed to have had a theoretical grasp of the benefits of breastfeeding, they did not understand its physiology, and this led to practices which worked to defeat the process. At the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, the staff had concluded by 1929 that the baby should not be put to the breast soon after delivery and forced, quote, to struggle on an empty breast. The mother, they said, should not be needlessly tormented in the first 24 hours postpartum. Trying to start breastfeeding as late as the fourth day soon became a regular hospital practice, and even then, the baby was brought to the mother every four hours at most. The result was that mother's breasts often became so painfully engorged with milk that the baby could no longer successfully take the nipple. This was Mrs. Winnie Weatherstone's experience. I, I hate to seem critical, but I feel they didn't bring me the child early enough. So by the time she was brought to me, I was bigger than Mae West. <laughs> and my nipples had almost disappeared from view. And it was very painful. And to, to be able to manipulate, to try and give the child an opportunity of a nipple to suck was difficult and painful. It took quite a while before we did establish it. We did establish it. I went home, a nursing mother, quite successfully. This baby was weaned at one month on her doctor's orders. And Mrs. Weatherstone was unsuccessful in nursing her second baby. But then with her third, she finally achieved a full and satisfying breastfeeding relationship. Mrs. Weatherstone is heard here in conversation with Uta Mason, my partner in the preparation of this program. I successfully nursed this child, and the bonding was wonderful. She laughed at such an early age. She'd look at me as though she really recognized me as her mother. More so than the others? I don't know whether it was the act of nursing made me feel that it was something special. You know, I felt at last in my old age I'm achieving what I felt was the right, the right thing in motherhood. What made I the difference? Know. Why did this nursing succeed? Well, I think I give credit to a Scottish night supervisor at the Civic Hospital in Ottawa who came round one night at 10 o'clock and found me in tears because, same thing, oh, Mae West had nothing on me. I had wonderful upper works. And she said, you don't look very happy. I said, I'm not. It doesn't look as though I'm going to nurse this baby, and I do so want to. She said, will you work with me? I said, I'll do anything, anything. So they wheeled in an electric machine, and I was coupled up, and believe me, Elsie Borden, the faithful cow, had nothing on me. And that machine, you see, was able to free the nipples, drew them out where the child probably couldn't. And my doctor, <laughs> he, he was a dear, uh, because they were so painful, 
he believed in a lot of ancient British preparations. He ordered two lead caps. They're shaped to fit over the nipples. And I wore those. And uh, as far as I can understand as an ignorant layperson, the action of the milk seepage on the lead cap kept the nipples soft. And so they weren't painful. I've still got them. Mrs. Weatherstone, naturally, was grateful for the machine which helped her to nurse. But the need for such machines was almost certainly a consequence of the fact that mothers didn't get their babies soon enough or often enough. The physiological point, which medicine had not yet grasped, was that engorgement was the result of too little nursing, and too little nursing was the result of arbitrary schedules. Infrequent nursing was also the reason for the decline in supply which many women experienced after they left hospital. The connection between unconstrained demand and ample supply must once have been the common experience of women, but it would take several more decades for it to be incorporated into the body of certified medical knowledge, and this laborious trial-and-error attempt to reinvent the wheel was to have painful consequences for many women. As a result of the conditions imposed on breastfeeding in the hospital and the infrequent contact between mother and baby, many women went home with little confidence in their ability as mothers and more anxiety than joy in their relationships with their babies. They may also have been debilitated after a prolonged stay in hospital. Mary Ellis's first baby came so fast that she didn't reach hospital in time to be anesthetized for the birth but she was still required to remain in bed for the standard two weeks. When I came home with the oldest one, I'd been in the hospital for two weeks. There was nothing wrong with me, whatever. I was, it was a very easy birth. I had been sitting up in bed, f finishing a shawl a few hours after the birth was over, and the other women were still, because they were so uncomfortable, I was not uncomfortable. I didn't have stitches. I was, just seemed to be fine. But I was not allowed to put my feet over the side of the bed, even. You mustn't dangle your feet over the side of the bed for, I think it was two weeks. And when I came home, I was so out of condition, my muscles were so weak, that I couldn't even get up a step. Stan had to carry me up the steps. It was ridiculous. The difficulties that women experienced when they first came home led to the idea that they required professional assistance in the home as well as the hospital. Kate McElraith, writing in The Canadian Nurse in 1940, suggested that this requirement be imparted to women during their hospital stay. At this time, it is wise to teach the expectant mother the value of having a trained person help her when she comes home from the hospital with her baby. It seems ludicrous that a newborn baby after being given such excellent care in the hospital for the first two weeks, should suddenly be turned over to the care of a young mother who is totally unprepared. Too often kindly but misinformed relatives or neighborhood handywomen are given the care. Nurse McElraith's disdain for neighbors, relatives, and traditional helpers reflected the common view of her profession 
that proper care of babies required certified skills. Traditionally, mothers had been given help in their households so that they could be with their new babies. Now they found their babies being placed under scientific management while they were left with the housework. Victoria Brandon. The thing that screwed up my relations with my child was my husband was uh, English. And he believed profoundly to the depths of his soul that you couldn't bring up children yourself. You had to have a nanny. And this female was introduced into our previously happy home, and she nearly busted it up. She wouldn't let me do anything. And, uh, well, then he had to go away one weekend, and I fired her. And we had a terrible row, and because he, he felt it was impossible, you know. How would we bring up the baby without her? And she was awful. She was just horrible. She wouldn't let me give him a bath. She wouldn't let me feed him. And I was supposed to go around cleaning the house, I guess, while she had all the fun. But this lasted, I don't know how long, maybe, maybe a month. And um, after that, we began bringing them up together. But he was, Richard, was so afraid of hurting it, he treated it as if it was made of porcelain or something. So he'd be so afraid to touch the baby. The undrugged experience of childbirth, the sensual intimacy of breastfeeding, and the support and advice of family and community had formed the basis on which child-rearing traditionally developed. But with women unconscious during the delivery of their babies and breastfeeding declining, these resources were largely lost. In addition, mothers and families had been subjected to a powerful and prolonged public education campaign on the theme of trust the experts not yourself or your relatives or your neighbors. The result was that pediatricians came to have an unprecedented importance in the rearing of children. They ceased to be simply specialists in childhood diseases and began to aspire to advise families on every aspect of child rearing. Dr. Alan Brown wrote in 1931 that already about 50% of the pediatrician's practice was devoted to the supervision of the normal child's play diet, sleep, etc. And he hoped that this proportion would increase as more women accepted the idea that child-rearing required the guidance of a trained physician. Brown wrote this in a book called The Normal Child, Its Care and Feeding, which was described by Chatelaine magazine as a must for mothers, and apparently in pre-Dr. Spock, Ontario, many mothers concurred. The great figure amongst Montreal pediatricians was Alton Goldblum, who shared Dr. Brown's conviction that the doctor's proper role was to pronounce upon all aspects of child-rearing, as in this example from his book, The Care of the Child. A young baby is sufficient unto himself. He derives all necessary stimulation from his own activities and his own immediate surroundings. Playing with a young baby is never necessary, and it is often harmful. This is particularly true in the case of a nervous baby. A little play in the middle of the afternoon, say for 10 or 15 minutes, with a baby of four months or over, may be permitted. But a baby should never be played with or stimulated in any way immediately before any feeding time or within an hour of bedtime. 
Friends, neighbours and relatives with more or less experience in the rearing of children are very quick not only to give advice in management and feeding, but to pronounce upon the significance of any symptoms a child may show. The practice of giving such advice and the habit of taking such advice cannot be too strongly condemned. The sum total of such unsolicited advice is often the complete distraction of the mother. The best practice is to have a physician trained in the care of children to look after the baby from birth, to whom all matters of this sort may be referred. Dr. Goldblum's advice is much against common sense and common experience. It is as natural to play with babies as it is to trust the advice of those closest to you. One wonders, therefore, whether advice like this would actually have been heeded by families. The answer, for the urban middle class who went to pediatricians, seems to have been yes, it largely was. Babies were put outside in carriages all day, fed on inflexible schedules which had the authority of holy writ, and left to cry themselves to sleep. An article in Chatelaine in 1928 by a woman who was trying to mother by the book revealed that she was with her baby a total of two hours out of 24. The rest of the time, the baby was either outside in the carriage or in her room. But there must have been many parents who had trouble following the rules, because in the same year, Chatelaine also printed this article by Frances Lilly Johnson. Parents are today more severely criticized than ever before, and in spite of advances made, they deserve it. The hopeful sign is that they realize their shortcomings, are willing to remedy their lack of knowledge, and are seeking ways of gaining an understanding of their children. A new branch of learning has come into existence to help them in their difficulties, parent education. It aims to teach parents how to make a scientific study of their children. They can then treat behavior problems with understanding and justice, unbiased by personal feelings. The idea that parents ought to be unswayed by their feelings found its most extreme expression in the conventional pediatric wisdom that babies ought to be left to cry rather than comforted during their fussy periods. This is Alton Goldblum's treatment of the issue from his book, The Care of the Child. When the baby is crying, whether it is during the day or night, rocking, walking the floor, shaking or otherwise agitating the baby must be rigorously avoided. Few people realize the importance of vigorous, lusty crying in a healthy infant. It is as essential to the infant as exercise is to the adult. It is, in fact, the infant's daily exercise. All young babies should have a crying period during each day. Many babies will have their crying spells during the early part of the evening and will then sleep peacefully through the night. The infant who chooses to have his crying spell during the night should be trained to have it during the daytime so that he will sleep at night. This is not difficult to achieve. If the baby who habitually cries during the night and sleeps during the day is kept out of his usual surroundings for a day or so, he will soon learn to have his crying spells at a proper time. The infant who cries regularly between 5 and 6 or 8 and 10 o'clock in the evening is doing what is called reflex crying. It is not to be assumed under such conditions that he is suffering either discomfort or pain, but it is to be taken for granted that such crying is good for the baby and is as important as his food. The idea that crying was good for babies 
appears to have been pure invention. The fact that crying means distress is self-evident, and a parent's response to it is virtually instinctual. But many of the pediatricians of this period appear to have concluded that the baby's desire for unscheduled physical closeness and comfort was not legitimate. Perhaps they then rationalized their unwillingness to recognize it with the convenient notion of crying as a beneficial form of exercise. Perhaps also they were somewhat intoxicated with the behaviorist discovery that babies can be trained out of crying by the simple expedient of never responding. Behaviorism was an important influence on the pediatricians of this period, and it seems to have led them to the conclusion that proper socialization could result only from rigorous training and not from any inherent impulse in the child to conform to the standards of his community. Alan Brown, for example, discerned the seeds of future antisocial behavior in even the child's simple wish to be comforted. The environment of the child must be guided by the physician. He must give advice concerning the details of early training in obedience, habit formation, temper tantrums, etc. How often do we see the young infant stop crying at two weeks of age when it is picked up by either parent? Herein lies the potential juvenile court case. Unless the parents are guided by the physician, even at this early stage, the infant soon learns to put one over on its parents. That this rather mean-spirited advice could have been given at all testifies to the insularity of medical culture. Men who had never reared children were trained in medical schools by other men who had never reared children, and women carried out their dictates. When either the mother or the baby proved refractory, sterner measures were proposed. Mothers were regularly criticized for their laxity and sentimentality. Babies whose bowel movements were not regular by three months of age were given laxatives or soap suppositories or stimulated with a rubber rectal catheter. If normal training methods failed to produce regular sleeping habits, Alan Brown would prescribe phenobarbital. And most draconian of all were the forced weanings, described by Dr. Brown in his book Common Procedures at Sick Children's Hospital. About weaning. In many instances, when the infant is offered the artificial feeding, it absolutely refuses to take it. And with these cases, the second method of weaning must be used. The infant is offered artificial feeding every few hours. If it does not take it, the feeding is removed after an interval of five minutes and not offered again until four hours have elapsed. 15% sugar solution should be given in the interval. Infants will frequently refuse all food for 12, 24, or even 36 hours. The parents usually become quite alarmed for fear the infant is being starved to death. There is no danger of this. Very occasionally, however, a particular type of baby in which the metabolism is abnormal will develop a toxic acidosis after 24 hours starvation. They pass into a shock-like condition and may die unless energetic treatment is given in the form of an intravenous injection of glucose or a transfusion of blood. Unfortunately, it is impossible to detect these cases before the symptoms develop. Occasionally, infants are encountered who refuse to eat any solid food. The same procedure has to be employed as in the sudden weaning of the infant. No milk should be given until the solid food has been eaten first. 
as the usual cause of this situation is due to lack of parental discipline, in the obstinate cases, the patient should be placed in the care of someone other than the mother. It is sometimes necessary to give nourishment with the aid of a stomach tube. Usually the distress caused by this serves as an added inducement for the infant to take solid food. What comes through in this passage, aside from the unpleasantness of the procedure itself, is Dr. Brown's tremendous confidence in his own authority. It was this conviction which often led women to doubt their own judgment. In the early 1940s, Winnie Weatherstone was required by her doctor to wean her first baby at one month of age because the baby was spitting up heavily. She described her reaction to my partner, Uta Mason. He felt that it would be better if she was not nursed. And so what did he tell you to do? Well, then I had to stop nursing right away. He made, a, he made out a formula. I think I still had um, an older woman who wasn't a baby nurse, but um, she was a helping nurse, you know, when you come home with a new baby. And she gave her the bottle. Because, <laughs> again, to revert to farmyard, Usage. I know exactly how the cows feel when the calves are taken away. I just flooded. As soon as the child cried, well, then I was ready. And that's very painful when that has to be choked off. You mustn't drink liquids. You have Epsom salts in those days. Drying out's not easy. So you were in one room listening to somebody else cuddling your baby and saying, say the nice bottle, and you know that you should be there. <laughs> So how did you feel? Oh, I didn't feel, I didn't feel happy at all. Oh, I felt separated. I felt denied. Now that may be very selfish. I mean, I had to look at it that my doctor must know better than I, so that I am being selfish in wanting to keep that child to me. You, you don't know, you see, whose knowledge is best. child-rearing advice penetrated the Canadian population depended largely on region and class. Well into the 1940s, public health nurses reported with disapproval that rural and working-class families had no separate crib for the baby. Even separate rooms for older children were often impossible in smaller homes. And although artificial feeding became widespread in some rural areas, it was still largely done on demand rather than on schedule. But in the urban middle class, where the pediatricians held their greatest sway, and women actually tried to remake their homes in the image of a hospital, child-rearing was literally transformed. The attempt to isolate the baby from infection by protective routines and by continual cleaning increased housework and reduced the sensory pleasure of contact with the baby. Mothers breastfeeding by the clock often had to deal with hungry babies whose cries they were supposed to ignore. Early toilet training and weaning involved additional futility, while the importance of maintaining an invariable routine undermined any possibility of spontaneity. Most important, by becoming merely the agents of the latest theory, mothers gave up the last vestige of their traditional authority and independence. 
Eventually, even the experts began to notice that something was amiss. The 1948 edition of Alan Brown's advice book, without apparent irony, worried that mothers had become too anxious about doing everything right to actually enjoy their babies. Author and public health nurse Florence Emery was typical in calling for more flexibility. Public health nurses must remember always that it is just as important for the mother to know how and why she should use certain methods as it is for her to know what methods to use. In the past, the pediatrician and the public health nurse have overstressed fixed routines in the physical care of the baby. While a routine should be established, the baby is a member of the family group and in so far as possible should fit into the particular family situation. A mother who devotes herself to the routine of her child and refuses to go out with her husband or friends for normal recreation is setting up a much greater mental health hazard for the child than the occasional disturbance of the sleep or feeding routine. Revisions to the accepted theories multiplied. Scheduled feedings were sometimes reduced to every three hours. Playing with babies was allowed for limited periods. And Dr. Spock, in his first edition, even went so far as to invite the mother to take her cues from the baby. But what remained constant as the enduring legacy of this period was dependence on expert opinion. Toronto midwife Mary Sharp recalls the importance of the pediatrician when she had her first children in the early 1970s. We would gather, we young faculty wives, every morning we'd gather in the playground and we'd talk about our pediatricians. That was a major talk of, topic of conversation. And I can remember myself, you know, uttering every single last syllable of what the pediatrician said and what, even in what tone of voice he said it. You know, now I, I know I have a, a feeling of incredible confidence that I know what I need to know in order to care for my children. I, I don't need to call a doctor and ask him. Besides which, I'd probably call a, a friend if I was concerned. But at that point, even that, you know, just, you know, fevers, diaper rashes, when to introduce solids, all of these, these things were sort of a mystery to me. I think more so for, for some of the other people that I, I saw who, you know, fell in love with their pediatrician. Oh, he's so cute, and, you know, and because the doctor, whether male or female, is in a sense allowed in to this intimate thing that's happening, whether it be giving birth or whether it be caring for a family's children, immediately he is entrusted with enormous amount of decision-making that's very, I think, extremely inappropriate. And there's a great deal of fear from most women why should they f be so afraid to change doctors, even? I can remember with my third child going to this doctor that had lived on our street and moved down to New York, and we were in New York, and he told me that it would not be the right of my husband to be there at the birth of our child, but it would be a privilege that would be given to him by the hospital. At that point, I decided that I couldn't go back to him. But I... I dreamt about him. I didn't even like him. I, I dreamt about the letter I was going to write to him. I talked to people all the time about it. I put enormous amount of energy into this non-relationship because he, in some ways, 
represented an authority to me or some sort of a spiritual leader in certain certain funny sense? Why is there all that energy there? Why is there? Mary Sharp has, in a sense, answered her own question by suggesting that doctors had been allowed into the very center of family life. In the era of modern pediatrics, the ability to raise children was no longer conferred by instinct, experience, or tradition. The authority of family and community had given way to certified professional authority. on Ideas, you've been listening to the third program in our four-part repeat series, Doctoring the Family. The program was researched by Jutta Mason, written by Jutta Mason and David Cayley, and presented by David Cayley. Production assistant, Alison Moss, technical operations by Lorne Tulk, readings by Claire Coulter and Frank Perry. Production, Jill Eisen. A transcript of this four-part series is available for $7.00. If you'd like a copy, write Doctoring the Family, care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a cheque or money order for $7 payable to CBC Transcripts. Please don't send cash through the mail. But please be prepared to wait four to six weeks for delivery. We've also put together a reading list to accompany this series, and you can get that free by writing us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Join us tomorrow evening for Lewis Mumford and the 20th Century. Lewis Mumford was a persistent critic of the modern age. In this repeat series, we talk to Mumford's friends and colleagues and examine the ideas and influence of this prophetic thinker. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.